Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 26, Miranda versus Arizona. came out in 1966. This was a 5-4 to four decision that created the Miranda warnings you've all heard on TV and in movies, and it goes something like this. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in court. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions. You have the right to have a lawyer with you during questioning. If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you before any questioning if you wish. If you decide to answer questions now without a lawyer present, you have the right to stop answering at any time. We'll discuss how we got to that. And as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com and find me on social media, Twitter at TheBlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. I'd love to hear from you. Like, share, and rate if you are so inclined. Now, first, my personal thoughts on the opinion so you know where I'm coming from. Giving warnings is a great idea and it's a great policy, but contrary to the 5-4 majority in the actual decision, it's not a constitutional requirement. Much of this opinion and the dissents is spent discussing police procedures and policy. It's a worthy discussion, and there's a lot of good stuff in reading this opinion about the horrors of what police do, trying to trick people into confessions and how many of them are false. Certainly not voluntary, but this is a discussion that should be done in a legislature or some other lawmaking body, not a court. So the majority goes on and on, and they really do. I mean, it's, I learned a lot from reading about these procedures that police do. They go on and on about dubious law enforcement practices. And I'm completely down with the criticism. It's bad. No doubt about it. And if you haven't seen the confession, with air quotes, cops extract from Brendan Dassey on the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, watch it. Some say that documentary is biased or whatever. Somebody's going to criticize everything. But that video of what law enforcement does to Dassey... A teenage boy with severe cognitive developmental problems is obscene. That video speaks for itself. And these abuses should be fixed. But creating a fake constitutional requirement is not the proper way to do it in a constitutional republic. As Justice John Marshall Harlan II said, The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. Harlan is speaking out against the judicial philosophy that gave us Roe v. Wade, another long policy discussion that uses constitutional provisions as pretext to arrive at a very specific policy. We went over Roe in episode 11 and how that how they got there and what it, what it actually does. It may be great policy. I tend to agree with the policy, but it's got nothing to do with the legitimate powers of the Supreme Court. And I, I agree with the policy behind Roe and Miranda and some other cases that the Supreme Court has implemented without any legitimate authority to do so. And understand, see, unlike most radio and TV talk show participants, I understand that a good idea does not equal a constitutional requirement or vice versa. Just because something's a bad idea doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. They are completely different concepts. If the court can create constitutional rights, they can keep creating them. We know the likes of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and many others would love the Supreme Court to find a right with air quotes, to healthcare in the Constitution, but it ain't there. I don't care how hard you look. You can make it up, but it's not there. And once we accept the Supreme Court's usurpation of authority to make things up, like in Roe and Miranda and others, there's nothing to stop them from creating new rights. There will be no end to it. So that's why it's important for me to say, and others, I agree with that policy, but it's not the Supreme Court's legitimate place to do that. The state argued in the Miranda case that warnings would make it harder on law enforcement. So what? That is the entire point of the Bill of Restrictions often called the Bill of Rights, but it's not a Bill of Rights because it doesn't give you any rights. It restricts government authority. So the entire point of the Bill of Restrictions, the Fourth Amendment, is to make law enforcement harder. 
Those damn warrants and probable cause make it so much harder for law enforcement. It's the entire damn point. And it's stupid for them to even make that argument, but they make it all the time. They make it when defending their outright theft of private property via forfeiture laws, and that's the argument they're making today. You hear it all the time. We've let our country become so statist that these arguments are not laughed out of existence. Not only that, so many limited government, again, air quotes, limited government conservatives hate any notion that police power should be curtailed in any way. Think about that. It is downright totalitarian. And this is from a country, or people living in a country, founded on a violent revolution against totalitarianism. All right, name participants. There were actually several cases of cases from different states where people had similar issues about not being warned of their rights. Ernesto Miranda was a criminal defendant in the in an Arizona case. He was the first listed out of the five dealing with all the same issues or basically similar issues that were before the court in this written opinion. The Supreme Court tally, five to four, like I said, Thurgood Marshall wasn't on the Supreme Court yet, but he was one of the lawyers representing one of the criminal defendants and advocating for the warnings. So the 5-4 decision, 1966, was written by Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was appointed in 1953 by Eisenhower, a Republican. But Warren is an R. He's known for being liberal. I'm just pointing this out because the R&D tribe members make such a big deal out of the affiliation of Supreme Court justices, and it doesn't all the time make that big a difference. Warren is an example. Big liberal justice, nominated by a Republican. Warren is also a former governor of California, and he got his uh, law degree at Cal Berkeley. And I mention this because most of them these days went to Harvard or Yale. And I think that's a problem. We need more diversity among Supreme Court justices. If they all come out of Yale and Harvard, how much diversity are you going to get? And if I ever get to nominate a Supreme Court justice, I'd pick someone from a state law school. There are plenty of good ones. Berkeley, like Warren, but they don't do that anymore. University of Texas, University of Virginia, all worthy public state schools that would provide more diversity than just two Ivy League schools. So Justice Warren was joined in the 5-4 opinion by Hugo Black, who was nominated in 37 by FDR. And he went to Alabama, the one in Tuscaloosa for law school. So again, they don't do that anymore, but I'm glad they did back then. William O. Douglas, also in the majority, nominated in 39 by FDR, went to Columbia Law, Ivy League. William Brennan, also in the majority, appointed in 56 by Eisenhower, another liberal justice appointed by a Republican. He went to Harvard Law. And then the fifth person joining the majority was Abe Fortas, who was appointed by LBJ in 1965, and he went to Yale Law School. The dissent was Tom C. Clark, appointed in 49 by Truman. He went to University of Texas undergrad and law school. John Harlan, my guy who I quote a lot with that Supreme Court's not a panacea quote. He was appointed in 55 by Ike. He went to Princeton and New York Law School. Potter Stewart, also in the dissent, nominated in 58 by Ike. Went to Yale both times, undergrad and law school. Byron White, also in the dissent. He was appointed in 62 by JFK. Went to Colorado undergrad, University of Colorado. He's a Buffalo. And then he went to Yale Law School. So there were four opinions. You had the majority, five person majority, and then three separate dissents. All right, some of the facts. Ernesto Miranda was one of five criminal defendants. He was arrested at home, and this is taken from the opinion. He was arrested at his home and taken in custody to a Phoenix police station. He was there identified by a complaining witness. The police then took him into interrogation room number two of the detective bureau. There he was questioned by two police officers. The officers admitted at trial that Miranda was not advised, that he had a right to have an attorney present. Two hours later, the Police officers emerged from the interrogation room with a written confession signed by Miranda. At his trial before a jury, the written confession was admitted into evidence over the objection of his defense counsel. He was found guilty of kidnapping and rape and was sentenced to 20 to 30 years imprisonment on each count. The sentence is to run concurrently. On appeal, the Supreme Court of Arizona held that Miranda's constitutional rights were not violated. And from there, it went to the Supreme Court of the United States and they reversed that. The majority held, again quoting from the opinion, from the testimony of the officers, 
It is clear that Miranda was not in any way apprised of his right to consult with an attorney and to have one present during the interrogation, nor was his right not to be compelled to incriminate himself, which means to speak, you can shut up. That right was not effectively protected in any other manner. Without these warnings, the statements were inadmissible. The mere fact that he signed a statement, which contained a typed-in clause stating that he had, quote, full knowledge of his, quote, legal rights, does not approach the knowing and intelligent waiver required to relinquish constitutional rights. Now, White's dissent with Harlan and Stewart joining gives a counter-argument, and I think he's correct. The proposition that the privilege against self-incrimination forbids in-custody interrogation without the warning specified in the majority opinion and without a clear waiver of counsel has no significant support in the history of the privilege or the language of the Fifth Amendment. Also, he says... The court's holding today is neither compelled nor even strongly suggested by the language of the Fifth Amendment. Is at odds with American and English legal history. What it has done is to make new law and new public policy. He's right. Again, I agree with the policy, but the Supreme Court doesn't have a legitimate authority to make that policy and implement it. All right, let's get into the weeds with it. The first paragraph from Chief Justice Earl Warren's opinion. The cases before us raise questions which go to the roots of our concepts of American criminal jurisprudence. The restraint society must observe consistent with the federal constitution in prosecuting individuals for crime. More specifically, we deal with the admissibility of statements obtained from an individual who is subjected to custodial police interrogation and the necessity for procedures which assure that the individual is accorded his privilege under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution not to be compelled to incriminate himself. So that was the Supreme Court. What we need instead, this is me, is a society that teaches us to distrust government and not to speak to government agents, that we have natural rights among them, the right to not talk to whoever we don't want to talk to, that the government cannot legitimately take away. When I ran for attorney general as a libertarian four years ago in the state of Colorado, I discussed how the attorney general should tell people they don't have to speak to police to encourage them not to speak to police because the attorney general represents the people and asserting your right is something the people should do. The AG doesn't represent law enforcement. He represents the people. And Warren says that, quote, the restraint society must observe. Okay, actually, it's not society. It's government. The restraints government must observe. And I hate it when people equate the two, but they do it all the time. Bastiat summed it up when he said, socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. So when people do that, when they confuse the two or they treat them as the same thing, point it out to them that they're not the same thing and they should not be treated as the same thing. All right, I think police should be required by statute to give these warnings, but it's not in the Constitution. And just because I think the police should do something and it's good policy does not automatically make it constitutional. So the court in Miranda relied heavily upon another case they had decided two years earlier in 64 called Escobedo v. Illinois. So in the Miranda case, they cite Escobedo and they say, as in their law enforcement officials took the defendant into custody and interrogated him in a police station for the purpose of obtaining a confession. The police did not effectively advise him of his right to remain silent or of his right to consult with his attorney. Rather, they confronted him with an alleged accomplice who accused him of having perpetrated a murder. There, while handcuffed and standing, he was questioned for four hours until he confessed. During this interrogation, the police denied his request to speak to his attorney and they prevented his retained attorney who had come to the police station from consulting with him. At his trial, the state, over his objection, introduced a confession against him. We held that the statements thus made were constitutionally inadmissible. Now, that seems like an obvious conclusion to me. The Sixth Amendment says the government can't keep your attorney from you. Specifically, quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall have the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. 
the cops in Escobedo physically kept the guy's attorney from seeing his client. The court goes on, the Supreme Court majority, we start here as we did in Escobedo with the premise that our holding is not an innovation in our jurisprudence. It's not something new we're making up, but is an application of principles long recognized and applied in other settings. We have undertaken a thorough re-examination of the Escobedo decision and the principles it announced, and we reaffirm it. That case was but an explication of basic rights that are enshrined in our Constitution that, quote, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, and that the accused shall have the assistance of counsel. Rights which were put in jeopardy in that case through official overbearing. These precious rights were fixed in our Constitution only after centuries of persecution and struggle. Again, in the words of Chief Justice Marshall, they were secured for ages to come and designed to approach immortality as nearly as human institutions can approach it. Okay, again, rights are not given to the people. Constitution is a limitation on government coercion and government power and government authority. And the Constitution in the Bill of Restrictions slash rights says no person shall be compelled. That is a limit on the government. The government cannot compel you. That is a limit on government authority, not the grant of a right. That makes a world of difference. There's no right to counsel granted in the Constitution. The government is restricted, prohibited from convicting you if it keeps your attorney from you or doesn't let you have your attorney. And that's exactly what happened in the Escobedo case. That restriction is in the context of the Constitution. Escobedo is correct. The Supreme Court then got into some history about English common law, and they mentioned the expulsion of the Stuarts from the British throne in 1688. I just mentioned that because they mentioned the Stuarts in Thames versus Indiana, which we discussed uh, in episode 25 regarding excessive fines and the, the restriction on government power to assess them. The Supreme Court in Miranda goes on, while the admissions or confessions of the prisoner, when voluntarily and freely made, have always ranked high in the scale of incriminating evidence. If an accused person be asked to explain his apparent connection with a crime under investigation, the ease with which the questions put to him may assume an inquisitorial character, the temptation to press the witness unduly, to browbeat him if he be timid or reluctant, to push him into a corner and to entrap him into fatal contradictions, which is so painfully evident in many of the earlier state trials, made the system so odious as to give rise to demand for its total abolition. So deeply did the inequities of the ancient system impress themselves upon the minds of the American colonists that the states, with one accord, made denial of the right to question an accused person a part of their fundamental law, so that a maxim, which in England was a mere rule of evidence, became clothed in this country with the impregnability of a constitutional enactment. This is why people make fun of legal writing. Uh, Don't you just love the flowery language? The Supreme Court goes on. This was the spirit in which we delineated, in meaningful language, the manner in which the constitutional rights of the individual could be enforced against overzealous police practices. It was necessary in Escobedo, as here, to ensure that what was proclaimed in the Constitution had not become but a form of words. So, just words without any meaning. In Escobedo, the cops affirmatively kept the guy's lawyer away, direct contradiction of the constitutional limit on government authority. And here's what Warren said about the holding of that case in Miranda. Our holding will be spelled out with some specificity in the pages which follow, but briefly stated, it is this. The prosecution may not use statements, whether exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the privilege against self-incrimination. By custodial interrogation, we mean questioning initiated by law enforcement officers after a person has been taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom of action in any way. Okay, and this is why you should always ask if you're free to go. Or if you're free to leave. Because if not, you've been taken into custody. You've been deprived of your freedom of action. Because you can't leave. So at that point, you should definitely not talk. I mean, you shouldn't talk anyway. So they go and they talk about 
the warnings and the right to remain silent and all that. Basically, the warnings that you're all familiar with, which I went over at the beginning. And the court refers to these warnings as procedural safeguards. Well, procedural safeguards are not actual constitutional requirements. As much sense as I think they make and other people think they make, they are nevertheless judicially created amendments to the Constitution. I think they're a great idea, but they aren't constitutionally legitimate. The court then really gets into these procedural practices of law enforcement, and they refer to manuals, operating procedures of law enforcement, and they say, an understanding of the nature and setting of this in-custody interrogation is essential to our decisions today. The difficulty in depicting what transpires at such interrogations stems from the fact that, in this country, they have largely taken place incommunicado, in private. And as of today, of course, there's no longer any reason all police interrogations should not be recorded by video. Video recording is a damn good idea, but it's not in the Constitution, and that's okay. It's a policy we should adopt otherwise. The Supreme Court of Miranda goes on, in a series of cases decided by this court, long after these studies, the studies I talked about, these incommunicado interrogations of witnesses, the police resorted to physical brutality, beating, hanging, whipping, and to sustained and protracted questioning and communicado in order to extort confessions. The Commission on Civil Rights in 1961 found much evidence to indicate that some policemen still resort to physical force to obtain confessions. The use of physical brutality and violence is not, unfortunately, relegated to the past or to any part of the country. Only recently in Kings County, New York, the police brutally beat, kicked, and placed lighted cigarette butts in the back of a potential witness under interrogation for the purpose of securing a statement incriminating a third party. Horrible, horrible behavior which should be stopped. And that physical brutality is a constitutional violation. But I'm not sure how a warning that you can remain silent is going to stop police brutality. No warning is going to stop that. But if only the Supreme Court hadn't made up the doctrine of qualified immunity, which we discussed way back in episode four, police would be a lot more careful about their brutality and their coercion, even when it's not physical. The court goes on. The examples given above are undoubtedly the exception now, but they are sufficiently widespread to be the object of concern. Unless a proper limitation upon custodial interrogation is achieved, such as these decisions will advance, there can be no assurance that practices of this nature will be eradicated in the foreseeable future. They make great policy arguments, but they've got nothing to do with the constitutional decision of a warning requirement. All of these are great policy arguments, but they have nothing to do with the constitutional discussion of a warning requirement under the Constitution, because it's not there. So they're making a great policy argument. They're not making a legitimate constitutional argument, and they don't care. They're going to use their power, their usurped power, to affect a societal change they deem to be necessary. And I agree, it is necessary, but they don't have the legitimate authority to do it. Like John Marshall Harlan II said, descending in a different case, the Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. But that's what it's become. Supreme Court does more policy discussion. These police texts, these are their manuals they're referring to, professedly present the most enlightened and effective means presently used to obtain statements through custodial interrogation. By considering these texts and other data, it is possible to describe procedures observed and noted around the country. The court points out, or says, the officers are told by the manuals that the principal psychological factor contributing to a successful interrogation is privacy, being alone. The efficacy of this tactic has been explained as follows. The interrogation should take place in the investigator's office or at least in a room of his own choice. The subject should be deprived of every psychological advantage. In his own home, he may be confident, indignant, or recalcitrant. He is more keenly aware of his rights and more reluctant to tell of his indiscretions or criminal behavior within the walls of his home. 
Okay, no doubt that's true, and no doubt that practice needs to be curbed. More on interrogation tactics quoted by the Supreme Court in Miranda. To highlight the isolation and unfamiliar surroundings, the manuals instruct the police to display an air of confidence in the suspect's guilt, and from outward appearances, to maintain only an interest in confirming certain details. The guilt of the subject is to be posited as a fact. The interrogator should direct his comments toward the reasons why the subject committed the act, rather than court failure by asking the subject whether he did it or not. Like other men, perhaps Perhaps the subject has had a bad family life, had an unhappy childhood, had too much to drink, had an unrequited desire for women. The officers are instructed to minimize the moral seriousness of the offense to cast blame on the victim or on society. These tactics are designed to put the subject in a psychological state where his story is but an elaboration of the, what the police purport to know already, that he's guilty. Explanations to the contrary are dismissed and discouraged. Well, that's what the police have been doing, quoted in the Supreme Court case. And this is exactly what they did to Dassey and to thousands of people every day in this country. The Supreme Court goes on to discuss the tricks, quote-unquote tricks, that law enforcement uses to get confessions. Tricks. Tricking someone into a confession. That's obscene and it cannot be countenanced. The court goes on, quoting a manual, saying, quote, This method should be used only when the guilt of the subject appears highly probable. Highly probable. Sorry, letting law enforcement decide what is highly probable or who is highly probable of being guilty is what totalitarian police states do. And here's a scenario straight from the Supreme Court opinion. This is a quote from a manual that Miranda is quoting. This is a cop speaking in the Supreme Court scenario. Joe, you probably didn't go out looking for this fellow with the purpose of shooting him. My guess is, however, that you expected something from him, and that's why you carried a gun. For your own protection. You knew him for what he was. No good. Then when you met him, he probably started using foul, abusive language, and he gave some indication that he was about to pull a gun on you, and that's when you had to act to save your own life. Joe? That's about it, isn't it, Joe? Never talk to law enforcement, never. The Supreme Court goes on and discusses the whole good cop, bad cop thing, and they go on and on about these methods. Method is designed to elicit confessions. Quote, The interrogators sometimes are instructed to induce a confession out of trickery. Supreme Court, making that observation, trickery by law enforcement. That's unacceptable completely. Now, this opinion is largely comprised of discussions of police deceit, of fake lineups, and lies. It reminds me of a prisoner of war being interrogated by his captors about troop movements or battle plans, and that is all too accurate comparison. Police treating Americans as the enemy. You guys know better, so don't talk to law enforcement ever. Now, if you have a lawyer and a potential plea deal is available, talking might make sense under those circumstances, but never without a lawyer and without some kind of plea deal when it looks like they may be able to convict you on other evidence. So if it looks like you're going to get 10 years and you talk to your lawyer about it and the odds of you getting convicted and getting 10 years, and if you make comments, maybe they'll cut it to five or whatever, After discussing it, it might make sense. But without discussing it with a lawyer, don't say a word. So I'm not saying never talk to cops. I'm saying if you do know what you're doing in consultation with an attorney and know the risks of being convicted, the risks of a sentence versus an offer that guarantees you getting less of that, less time. It's hard to, it's a hard decision. It might make sense. The Supreme Court goes on. In the event that the subject, the defendant, wishes to speak to a relative or an attorney, the following advice is tendered. The interrogator should respond by suggesting that the subject first tell the truth to the interrogator himself, rather than get anyone else involved in the matter. If the request is for an attorney, the interrogator may suggest that the subject save himself or his family the expense of any such professional service, particularly if he's innocent of the offense under investigation. The interrogator may also add, Joe, I'm, I'm only looking for the truth. 
And if you're telling the truth, that's it. You can handle this by yourself. All right, back to me. That is, to put it politely, complete malarkey. It's a lie. Law enforcement is told to tell you to waive your constitutional rights when law enforcement should be enforcing your constitutional rights, not infringing on them or asking you to waive them. So if I do run for AG again in four years, I'm going to emphasize this. And your notification and your right to record police, your right to remain silent, your right to refuse consent to searches and to always use those rights. More from the SCOTUS opinion, Supreme Court opinion and Miranda. From these representative samples of interrogation techniques, the setting prescribed by the manuals and observed in practice becomes clear. In essence, it is this. To be alone with the subject is essential to prevent distraction and to deprive him of any outside support. The aura of confidence in his guilt undermines his will to resist. He merely confirms the preconceived story the police seek to have him describe. Patience and persistence, at times relentless questioning, are employed to obtain a confession. The interrogator must patiently maneuver himself or his quarry into a position from which the desired objective may be attained. When normal procedures fail to produce the needed result, the police may resort to deceptive stratagems, such as giving false legal advice. It is important to keep the subject off balance, for example, by trading on his insecurity about himself or his surroundings. The police then persuade, trick, or cajole him out of exercising his constitutional rights. Tell your kids never to talk to police or any authority figure without your presence. Don't listen to law enforcement threats. Insist on your parents' presence. Tell them they can say, take it up with my parents when they arrive. I will abide by my parental directive upon their arrival. Until then, I am not going to speak. I have been told by my parents not to speak without them here. I feel like I'm reading too much from the opinion, but the, but the majority makes a great case, a great case, for how deceptive and fraudulent law enforcement is and that you should never trust the police, never talk to them, and always exercise your rights. Why? Because you are a free American, by God. Because you understand what it means to be free, damn it. Anyone who wants to waive your rights, wants you to waive your rights, is un-American. Completely un-American. They would have been Tories during the American Revolution. They would have been loyal to the crown. The court goes on to describe some other cases where people waive their rights and the deception that police use to get them to waive those rights. And the court says, These individuals in other settings may have exercised their constitutional rights. In the incommunicado police-dominated atmosphere, they succumbed. So what's the lesson? Don't succumb. Tell your kids to never succumb. Preach the gospel that not succumbing is the most American thing you can do. The court goes on making great policy arguments in these cases. We might not find the defendant's statements to have been involuntary in traditional terms. Our concern for adequate safeguards to protect precious Fifth Amendment rights is, of course, not lessened in the slightest. Again, adequate safeguards are not the court's legitimate province. It's the province of legislators and executive members of the executive branches. And us, as individuals, we need to educate our kids as to their rights. We cannot abdicate that responsibility or to the state. If we do, that's on us. Appropriate safeguards are absolutely necessary, and it is up to us to safeguard ourselves and to teach others the same thing. If you don't talk, your lawyer isn't going to have to argue about whether or not what you said was voluntary. If you don't make statements, that solves the problem. In this case, the law enforcement behavior, as described by the Supreme Court, is a blot upon the public welfare, but the Constitution is simply not the appropriate place to erase that block. The court just keeps going on with evidence about police behavior, and it says, It is obvious that such an interrogation environment is created for no purpose other than to subjugate the individual to the will of his examiner. 
And yes, that is a blot on the public welfare. We as individuals have to erase that blot by taking responsibility for ourselves, for our children, and by refusing to countenance these law enforcement tactics via ballot and protest. And this is where the non-aggression principle comes in. Courts have allowed these lies and this fraud and this deception by police in order to get a confession. And fraud is a violation of the non-aggression principle. Don't give the state permission to trick people And some of this concern about truthful confessions goes away. Not all of it, but a whole lot of it does. Instead of creating the safeguard out of thin air about warnings, just declare that the state cannot compel self-incrimination, which the Constitution actually says, and that fraud and trickery is just as compelling as beating a confession out of a person. That's got actual constitutional text to support it, unlike these warnings which they make up here. It's not the Supreme Court's job to solve every problem, and yet that's what it's been doing for over a century. The court goes back to the source of American common law, England incites a historical event in 1637, and it says, The trial of one John Lilburn, a vocal anti-Stuart leveler, who was made to take the Star Chamber Oath in 1637. The oath would have bound him to answer to all questions posed to him on any subject. He resisted the oath and declaimed the proceeding, stating, Another fundamental right that I then contended for was that no man's conscience ought to be racked by oaths imposed to answer to questions concerning himself in matters criminal or pretended to be so. He was absolutely right, but he asserted this right without being informed of it, which is what we all need to do. We need to know it. We need to be like Lilburn, the anti-Stuart leveler. And then a broader point about the Supreme Court. In this case, in Miranda, they say, quote, those who framed our Constitution in the Bill of Rights were ever aware of subtle encroachments on individual liberty. Ah, the irony. The subtle encroachments of federal power have been sanctioned and rubber-stamped by the Supreme Court, like in Wickard v. Filburn, Episode 5 of The Law. So check it out. Back specifically to the right to remain silent, the court says, In sum, the privilege is fulfilled only when the person is guaranteed the right to remain silent unless he chooses to speak in the unfettered exercise of his own will. Again, banning fraud and deception and intimidation would help accomplish this. But they don't do that. They make up this warning. Free will is not being exercised when it has been cheated or defrauded. The problem could be largely addressed by banning police fraud, which is what they should have done. And what I think they could still do legitimately under the Constitution. The court goes on, the voluntariness doctrine of confessions encompasses all interrogation practices which are likely to exert such pressure upon an individual as to disable him from making a free and rational choice. Absolutely. But the Supreme Court here is trying to overcome that waiver of the ability to make a free and rational choice with these warnings. But lies and deceit and fraud, which police still may employ, disable an individual from making a free and rational choice, which is what the Supreme Court's trying to stop here. They're trying to let people make a free and rational choice by giving them warnings. But if you get rid of the deceit and fraud, that also helps somebody making a free and rational choice because you cannot make a free and rational choice if you've been defrauded. So in essence, the Supreme Court now is still allowing for state fraud and deception, but says you must first be warned about falling for it, in essence. When capacity is impaired, one cannot exercise a rational judgment. The same reason someone with dementia isn't allowed to sign a contract because they cannot exercise that rational judgment. Their free will has been incapacitated. So the police saying, you go to jail unless you tell me what I want to hear and convincing someone that lie is subverting free will. You know what? We, we should have public service announcements saying, you never have to talk to police. Never. Don't be fooled. To the extent we're going to have public schools, that should be part of the curriculum. It should be a badge of honor to assert one's rights. Police shouldn't have to rely on confessions. Well, they shouldn't rely on confessions. They certainly should not trick people 
into making them. That's a sick practice. The right to counsel is part of the Sixth Amendment, which we talked about. So in criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have assistance of counsel for his defense. Denying the defendant an attorney is a blatant violation of this restriction on government power. And we discussed Gideon v. Wainwright in episode 19, which deals with that and other things. So let's teach kids via public service announcements so we know it like we know the Pledge of Allegiance. We know we should replace the Pledge of Allegiance. We should have a pledge to assert my rights. What kind of statist, communist, fascist nonsense is a pledge of allegiance to the state? What if the state wants you to do something immoral? Then you don't do it, but you pledge your allegiance to the state. So, no, don't need a pledge of allegiance. We need a pledge to assert our inalienable rights. That's far more American. That's what we need. The Supreme Court starts to wrap it up, and and they acknowledge that the legislature can do something about the evils they have rightfully acknowledged in this. They talk about the creative rulemaking capacities of the legislature. However, those creative rulemaking capacities aren't among the powers that the Supreme Court has, not legitimately. The Supreme Court, talking about the warnings they've just created, says, This warning may serve to make the individual more acutely aware that he is faced with a phase of the adversary system, that he is not in the presence of persons acting solely in his interest. Oh, ain't that the truth? And again, the public education system, as long as we have one, should teach this, and so should every American parent, and the Boy Scouts, and the Kiwanis, and the Elks Club, and the Rotarians, and every other American organization. Americans should be aware of their rights, like a fish is aware of the water around him. The Supreme Court goes on, moreover, any evidence that the accused was threatened, tricked, or cajoled into a waiver will, of course, show that the defendant did not voluntarily waive his privilege. That's the Supreme Court. Yet the cops trick people into confessions once a waiver has been obtained by trickery or threat. See, Dassey. The court also notes that criminal defense attorneys play a vital role in the administration of criminal justice under a constitution. Indeed, that's true, but so do individuals. You don't need an attorney to know you should never speak to law enforcement without one. And the less you have to hide, the more powerful your assertion of your rights. Never give permission for a search. I don't care if nothing's in your trunk. Don't let them look in it. It's none of the government's business what you have or don't have in your car or your bag or your house or whatever. Rights are like muscles. If you don't use them, they atrophy. Flex your muscles. Why? Because you're a good American. So in, in conclusion, the, the policy espoused by the Supreme Court 5-4 majority in Miranda versus Arizona is dead on correct. The policy is. But the Constitution does not make the Supreme Court a policy-making body. Law enforcement, fraud, and deceit, and coercion is indeed a blot upon the public welfare. But the Constitution provides no legit authority for the Supreme Court to enact policy to clean up that blot. We, as individuals, as Americans, are responsible for asserting our rights and to teach others to do the same. So let's get to it. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law. Episode 26, where we discuss Miranda versus Arizona, were brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.